Hello, and welcome back to Now Screaming, episode 89. I'm Evan Culbertson. And I'm Liz Smart. And we're watching all the horror movies currently available for streaming on the internet. So you don't have to. This week, we'll be talking about the 1964 horror film Onibaba, which comes to us from Criterion Channel. Mm-hmm. A classic. Written and directed by Kaneto Shindo, Onibaba, which translates as Demon Woman or Demon Hag. Demon Hag is what I saw, which I like a lot better. The, subti- the subtitles on Criterion Channel say Demon, Demon Woman. Demon Woman, yes. Is a horror film that comes from the Japanese New Wave. It's 1964, which is the same year as Woman in the Dunes and Kwaidan, other Japanese horror films. But despite this context, I will say coming into this, I don't know that much about this era of Japanese film. I know a little bit about directly before the Kurosawa heyday then. I don't know Kurosawa's 60s films as well. Mm -hmm. And I know a little bit about what comes after, because I'm into 70s film. I come into this pretty fresh and... I wasn't sure what to expect with this. I mean, I, I even I know even less than you. I know nothing about Japanese film really at all. I think my only like Japanese horror uh, context at all is House Houseu. Well, The Grudge and The Ring. But I only know the. I guess I, I've seen Juan, and we've now seen Juan too. But uh, even I, the the familiarity I have is really with the with the English remakes. So sure, and of course the the J horror boom in the nineties and two thousands is something very different than this. Which yes, completely. I'm just, I'm prefacing this up front because I think that there's a larger academic conversation to be had there that we're not as qualified for. No. This comes to us again from Criterion Channel. This is a classic of world cinema. And specifically in reading about this film, there's a lot of roots in no theater that I just don't know anything about. Oh. And I can't speak to what this is, how this is interfacing with that. If I'd seen this movie five to seven years ago, I might have more of a context because I did major in theater and study no theater uh, a little bit in my education, but that information has long since fled my brain. So, All those caveats aside, would you recommend this film to people who, similar to us, don't have all the academic context? Um, I think yes, but what I was going to say is that my enjoyment of this comes, I think, way more from a historian's perspective of, like, I want to understand horror history and horror influences. And so that was way more the enjoyment of it for me, more than, like, I just loved the movie itself. So I think that if that's your pursuit, then yes. If you're not a completionist, but, like, you want to understand influences and shifts, I would highly recommend this because it is very... A, a part of that, I think. Yeah, I think you're hedging in the way that we'll we'll clarify later. But I I would also recommend this. I think that on a minute to minute level, it is not out and out entertaining until its third act. Yes. But there is filmmaking here that I find just stunning. Um, a lot of the cinematography, a lot of the combination of music and sound and images, I thought was like really really striking, and. I would I would definitely recommend it. My main critique is that it's a little too long. It's a little too long, and it takes a little too long to get to the parts of it that are good. Specifically, the horror parts. Yes, and I think that like as a if you were to describe this movie to someone and the, and say the premise, um, which I which think you, you should, to, and maybe you might disagree with this premise because to me the premise in quotes there really only describes the third act of the movie and means this could kind of be like a short film. Whereas describing the premise of the first third 
is like not at all what I think this movie is about. Do you want to hear what I what I mean when I say that? Yeah, let's start. So we'll, we'll start talking about the plot now. I think that what you, one could say the premise is about um, a woman and her daughter-in-law who, having lost their son and husband to war, the same per- same man to the war, uh, resort to intense choices and decisions to maintain their livelihood. I think that's like a premise that you could say. That's what you would say if you didn't want to spoil anything or like give anyone a real sense of like, that's what the first two thirds of this movie is about. It's kind of vague. But that's what it's about. The second thing I would say, which I think is the more the horror premise and what makes it sound, I think, more interesting is it is about a a mask that won't come off. Yeah. I think to me, that's what it's really about. And, and in the way that that sounds very, that's really in the roots of horror and the roots of legend is to say, like, this is about masks and about a mask that won't come off and about the atrocities of war. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and, and the way that those things are t- so different because one takes so long to get to and the other is is so vague and not about not in any way horrific. Do you know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying, but I don't think I agree. So I think the whole film is pretty evidently about, I wouldn't put it as the atrocities of war, but the way that the war, and we should also say this is like the 14th century. Yes. This is like samurai war. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that the war like spirals out of its own orbit and affects others. Sure. Um, the context of this also, we should say, is a lot of Japanese filmmakers in the 50s and 60s were directly or indirectly making movies that were about the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And this is directly. Yeah. So this is about like the the repercussions of war. Mm-hmm. Um, you said extreme actions. What these two women are doing is that they're robbing... Uh, Samurai. Samurai primarily, but... I, Presumably anyone who makes the mistake of wandering through their field, yes. though it seems to specifically be Ronin, killing them and robbing them and selling all their armor and dumping their bodies down a hole. Mm-hmm. That is how they get by. Mm-hmm. Because because they live in this field. Field of, of grass. It's a field of Suzuki grass. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very specifically intended to be Suzuki grass. I imagine because it is so tall and it is so... It looks difficult to make your way through. And they live not on the edge of it, not in a clearing of it. Literally, their hut is just in this grass. Yeah. And the pit where they throw the bodies, again, not a clearing, just in this grass. If you don't know where it is, you will literally fall into it. As some do. Yes. Um, and so when people wander through, they have a very good sense of where they're going in this field. But anyone else would get completely lost and they take advantage of that. Yeah. And I think that their, their brutality and their... Their brazenness is... But they don't appear to struggle with it, really. No. There's no plot in this where it's like, oh, how will we, you know, deal with all these lives you've taken? Like, they're very aware that they just do what they need to do to survive. Yeah, I think that what the movie's doing for those first two thirds on that level, I do find interesting. But, again, it's not entertaining as a horror film. The way that the the murders that we see are shot are not shocking nor are they like gory it's Mm-mm. it's more it's more reflective it's more matter of fact cuz this is the da- their daily That's life what right it's like it's to very be, quotidian right? yeah that being said i did want to say that the cinematography in the first two thirds is a lot of extreme contrast of shadows and light and um, a lot of shots from below specifically looking down or looking up from 
inside the hole that they store bodies in. Mm -hmm. And this really overwhelming taiko drumming that yes is that would you consider that score yeah it's a score it's uh, that's my favorite part of this movie probably yeah it's this taiko drumming and like also these like guttural vocalizations Mm -hmm. like they seem to me like grunts of pain yeah it was this interesting thing of like as they are killing people the people themselves are not screaming or crying out but the score is crying out for them and that was very interesting yeah, I really love the music in this. What happens in the first two thirds of this film is that uh, amidst their daily life, their very quotidian daily life, Hachi, who is their neighbor, comes home from the war and claims that um, the younger woman's husband and older woman's son... Who is the uh, same person. By the way, these women don't have names. I wrote them down in my notes as old and young. Just Yeah, you know, on like IMDb, they're listed as like wife and mother of the character. I don't remember his name. Which I think is so wild because he never appears. Yeah. Like he doesn't exist as a character, but right. that's who they are in this script is so and so's wife and so and so's mother. And I think that's a little it's something. It's clearly intentional. There's yeah. there's a there's a there's a sexual gender element here. Anyway, Hachirup says, That guy's dead. Um they are very upset about it, obviously. But they can't do anything about it. They continue going about their life. They already have a, they have a plan, you know. They're doing what they're doing. Right. Eventually, Hachi and Young start sleeping together. The middle part of this movie is a lot of, like, sexual dramatic tension of mm-hmm. the older woman really resenting the fact that Young is sleeping with Hachi. I hate not yeah, having names for them. Both for, like, don't take her away because I need her to do murders, and also she comes on to him and she doesn't want her, so... There's a lot of, like, that at play that she dislikes his presence there for multiple reasons. Yeah, it's part- it's partially, like, a sexual love triangle, but it's also, like, a, like, we have this thing and you're threatening that. Yeah. And out of, like, probably both just genuine comfort of having each other, she doesn't want to be alone, but also practical, like, we literally, I literally cannot do my murders alone. Like, I need someone else here to help me live and make money. Yeah, I do think another thing worth mentioning here is that part of what this movie's doing is talking a lot about, you know, when they're when the older woman is having these conversations with Hachi, it's about, you know, when the war's over, I can manage on my own. But I need her here now to do murders, because otherwise I'm going to starve to death. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of talk about how... And I, I bring this up because the, the film really foregrounds it, that this is a war context movie, that... All of the the horrible things we see would only be happening in wartime, and that's like a uh, I think a, a justification that the characters are are saying to themselves rather than like. And also this idea that I think is true of all war, where it's just like this war is endless; it's never going to end. We're gonna like when or when will it end? And having no sense of like, oh, I can just do this for the next few years. Like she doesn't actually know how long she'll have to do these murders for. Right. It might be forever. It might be forever. You know, like who knows when war will end. And I think that's, that's part of this too, is it's this like, this feel, it feels like it's this endless war. Like they're all out of options. They're not getting any support. Isn't it when they go visit the guy that they sell the armor um, to, the armor to, he also says something about just how endless this war is and how everyone's losing hope. Definitely. But the, like the fucked up things that these women are doing, I think is they're justifying it to themselves by saying, well, it's wartime. These are, these are desperate times. We need to, murder every passerby who wanders into our field. Yeah. Well, especially if they're killing samurai, it's like, you're part of this. Absolutely. Not necessarily, in quotes, innocent of what we're talking about here. Absolutely. Moving into the third act, um, the young woman is spending every single night with Hachi. She sneaks out every night. Um, 
And one night that she's gone, a samurai comes into their tent, tent hut. It's like a hut. It's like a hut, but it's shaped like a tent. It's like a triangle. And anyway, but it's like a solid structure. It's not. It like is. A... It's made out of straw, probably the grass where they live. Um, he comes in, sort of, um, not attacks, but surprises the mother-in-law, um, the old woman, and demands that she help him out of the field. He is wearing a mask. Um, it is. Absolutely the best thing about this movie. I know I said it was a score earlier. It's definitely the mask. Yeah. It's a beautiful piece of uh, iconography. and It's like um, a demon mask, we should say. It's specifically yes. like a, a horned demon. Horned demon. Um, you would definitely kind of recognize the look of it from other a lot of other Japanese art. And he talks a lot about how... He talks a lot about how handsome he is underneath the mask, doesn't he? Yes. He specifically makes a point to say that. But she gets out of you know her bed and... I mean, where she's laying on the floor and goes to help him and tricks him into falling into the pit where they store all their other bodies. Um, He dies down there. She climbs down and tries to get the mask off of him and ends up ripping it off of his face. And he's horrifically disfigured under the mask. Yeah. She's like, oh, ho, ho. Time to plot. And she puts on the mask. And every night when the young woman leaves uh, their hut to go make love to Hachi, she hides in the field and scares the young woman until the young woman runs back home. So this is her, this is her plot, like her, her plan, her plot. Um, she's, this is how she's going to keep the young woman with her. But one night it rains and the mask becomes stuck to her face. And, uh, when she goes to scare the young woman, the young woman runs back to the hut and then she follows her and asks for help removing the mask. And there's a lot of, um, very theatrical. It's really interesting. This is, this is definitely part of the kind of the no theater aspect of it. A lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth kind of feel. An anguish. Anguish of just like, please, this mask, I'm so sorry. I, you know, this was my plot, but now it's, you know, all all ruined. And please help me get this mask off my face. And the young woman, what does she, what does she use? To, a rock. A rock starts hitting the mask in an attempt to get it off of the old woman's face. Um, ends up cracking it in half. And when the mask comes off, the old woman is also horrifically disfigured. Yep. And she ends up chasing the young woman through the field the young woman jumps over the pit and the old woman jumps after her. And that is the last room of the movie. We don't really see if she made it or if um, she didn't. But the key point of this, I think, is that as the young woman is running away and screaming, um, she's screaming about the old woman still being a monster. Yeah. And as the old woman is chasing her, she's screaming, no, I'm human. I'm a human being. And so... Which, which echoes actually the, the samurai who comes with the mask says explicitly... Um, I'm not a demon. I'm a, I'm a human being. Uh, I have my reasons for wearing the mask, but don't worry, I'm a human. Yeah. So I, that's part of the, I guess, the mask cards. The, the young woman also says specifically, like, this is your punishment for mm-hmm. trying to scare me. Like, there's a lot of things that I don't think we're going to end up going into in this movie about, like, sin and punishment and guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, like, one of the things that this film like, curses. And curses, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, like, curses that are, like, morally yes. uh, assigned. Right? Like, you have done something wrong and now you are being punished with, with a, a curse. curse. Absolutely. So I think that this third act, I mean, it's it's horror. I think that this third act builds upon the horror of, you know, just the premise of, you know, the murder and the, the mundanity. Mm-hmm. With both, like, these really great images of the aforementioned mask... Yes. In this very... And when she's tilting her head the way that she is with her hands by her face, there's such an image there that's so theatrical that you'd recognize from so much 
I agree. Know, I agree. It's very theatrical. Filmically, though, I think that it's also very, like, German expressionist. It's like Nosferatu, mm-hmm. right? The shadow and light and this, like, the grotesque just cast in shadow. I think that it works really well. But it's also kind of a body horror sequence. Yes. It's about, like, losing control of your body and, like, she can't get this mask off. And she's writhing and screaming and... And that it's fundamentally changing her. That is the body yeah. horror aspect also is, like, when it comes off, she is changed forever and has become, you know, as the young woman thinks, a monster yeah. without the mask. Yeah, absolutely. And, the, like, just even just the loss of control, mm-hmm. right? That, like... And, of course, like... Wearing a mask in the rain doesn't bind it to your skin. No, that's that, not a real thing. No, right? like, it feels very. It's it. There's, it's the only real glimpse of potentially something supernatural in it. Yeah. Because I also thought when the mask comes off, like that is kind of what just could happen if a mask was adhered to your face and then it got ripped off. Like your skin would be messed up. Sure. So there's kind of like both a natural and supernatural experience to this like you could kind of interpret it both ways but this mask being fused to her by the rain is it leans definitely into more the you know the curse being real and not imagined absolutely i think that i don't think there's real um ambiguity about that at the film's end that there is something more going on here than just a mask. karma mm-hmm. you know just yeah. like so I don't know. I thought this was really interesting. Again, I think that the the movie as a whole is really quite enjoyable when it gets to what it's doing. Mm-hmm. It takes far too long to get to what it's doing. Yeah. I just love... I think that's like what I keep coming back to when I said this in the beginning of just like, I love... It's not really fair to say. I like... I, when, I, when I found out what this was about, like when we got to that point of like, oh, this is about women who kill samurai and take their armor and sell it for food, I was like, that's a banger premise like yeah. in and of itself. But when it got to, like, this is a story about a mask that won't come off, that's, like, so what I love that I was, like, I kind of wish more of this was about that. So I'm kind of torn in, too, about, like, I really do love that first bit, even though it's slow, but I really love the end. And I don't know that I, like, I guess I don't really want anything to be different. I just love the end so much that I kind of wish more of it was about that. Yeah, I think that, for me, I think the tension in this movie is between the meandering quotidian horror that it's trying to be in the beginning. And then when it has a plot, it pretty solidly has a plot. Yeah. Right? Like, it's trying to be both things, and I don't think it succeeds because it mashes them up. If this was, like, a slower movie just about these women killing the samurai and the guilt and all of that, I think that that would work. Especially because stylistically, you know, the taiko drumming is so loud, some of the cuts are really fast, the... The grass is such an ominous figure. It is. You know, we didn't even talk about Very the hole. Very in the tall grass. <laughs> Very much in the tall grass. We didn't talk about the hole. This movie opens with um, text on screen talking about how this hole in the ground is dark and deep, and its darkness has lasted since I ancient times. I forgot about the text in the beginning. Yeah, like, that Man. isn't really, like, what the plot of this movie ends up being about, because it's about this mask, but, like, there's an evil in the ground. This hole is... It's This is the dumbest thing to say, but, like, the hole's a character, too, right? Yes. This hole is set up as the the darkness, the ancient darkness, and then that's just, like, us, like, pushed to the side. Yeah. Again, that's not necessarily a flaw, but if this movie doesn't ultimately work as, like, a masterpiece for me, despite how much we're praising it, I think it's because it's a little disjointed and has more ideas than it knows what to do with. Yeah. And is choosing, kind of, between being this, like slow pacing story about the monotony of life when you're in war. 
you know, right. survival, like, survival, exactly. And how, how it can be cut with this extreme terror and this extreme boredom. Um, but also it's like a horror movie about curses. And like, I think that it, I think you're right that there's a, it, it they're too separate. They don't yeah. necessarily come together. And it doesn't reconcile the tension, right? right? Like it's okay to have that tension, but I don't think that this, you know, synthesizes it. I think personally, I probably lean towards the interest in the, like the deep dark hole and the, way that it's corrupted them and the mask and that the has mask a curse, curse. right? I like, love a mask. I but love that's a curse. just my taste, right? Yes. I think that it just needs to do something more in either direction or bring it together better, mm-hmm. fuse it I better. Agree. There's one more thing that I wanted to bring up just because I feel remiss if we didn't mention it. These women are bare breasted very frequently so in this much. movie. <laughs> they don't care. It is it is such an interesting choice to me because again, it's it's clearly partially about a lack of modesty that is connected to, again, their brazenness in murdering these mm-hmm, but also lack of propriety, right? Like, yeah. You know, it's a, who cares? Like, I also, this uh, that actually that brings up something I'm interested in because I didn't know at first that she and Hachi were going to be um, consensual lovers. And when he comes for her in the field, there's a little bit of a threat of sexual assault but then she like is into it and they end up having an affair and then when the older woman comes on to him he's very much like not for me no thank you and so there is no there could be a lot of sexual assault in this movie of the samurai or hachi or any of these people and i if correct me if i'm wrong but there really isn't there isn't really a lot of threat of that and that feels surprising just knowing what these kinds of how these kinds of movies could turn out i agree yeah and i think that even if you told me it was a early '60s Japanese movie about, um, like women living alone in a field, and, and just like sexual morality in the samurai era, yeah, right. Like I would have assumed that there would be rape in it, right? Like, right. oh yeah, because there's. I just remember the guy who they sell the armor to. He's like, oh, you can have more uh, grain if you sleep with me, and they're like, whatever, you know. <laughs> they, yeah. don't even, they don't even do it. There isn't even this element of like, oh no, is that consensual? Because it's you know like. They're paying for their food or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's like no, they're just not even. They don't even care. They just they're not, they don't want it, and he doesn't push for it. But that's why I bring up the their their brazen toplessness. Yeah, is toplessnessness? No, no topless. top, toplessness. Brazen toplessness <laughs> is because this movie is very aware of sexual politics. This movie is trying to do something with eroticism, desire, and. Um, sexual power dynamics, mm-hmm. right? The the relationship between... I don't think it ever goes into queer territory, but, like, the relationship between these two women is really fraught with a power dynamic that is... It really... The, the fulcrum tips once yeah. Hachi enters the picture and there's uh, a sexual outlet for one, yes. you know? Like, this movie is really... I think it has something to say about that. I don't think we're going to unpack all that, but, like... It's it's very intentional and very deliberate. Right, but as I mean, as we discussed, like I think what's interesting about it is that there is actually no punishment for sexual desire or frivolity. Yeah. Like the punishment is in is to the mother in law for trying to punish the daughter in law for her sexual promiscuousness. Exactly. Uh, and her the you know quotes cheating on her husband or whatever. Um, because there was also that kind of push and pull of like he could still be alive, but he says he's not. But he has a reason to say that, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um. So, but so there's no punishment for sexuality in this movie, which I think is also a delight. This isn't a moralistic movie about sexual desire. No. But it is about morals and sexual desire. Yes. <laughs> which is nice. It's refreshing. I agree. Do you have any trivia for this movie? I do. I have one really excellent trivia fact, which is that the mask in this movie was very much an influence on the 
like Pazuzu look, the white face Pazuzu look in The Exorcist. Love that. Which I personally love. I think that's amazing. As someone who loves The Exorcist, that's just, that's exactly what I was talking about in the beginning of just like, uh, influences and it's, it's makes me excited that I saw this movie because now I have that information. That's really cool. Most of the other trivia I have is just that the filming of this was very interesting. Once Kaneno Shindo found the location that he wanted to use in this, uh, Suzuki grass, they all just set up shop and lived there, uh, very similarly to how these women were living, like in huts created for this purpose to film. Um, Shindo built things like a makeshift water slide for them all to enjoy, uh, and to like refresh them. So he really had to, um, do a lot of bribing. And he literally said, unless you finish this movie, you do not get paid, uh, to, to keep them all there because people were like, I guess, threatening to quit because it was very hot and I assume very boring and very isolating and things like that. Fascinating. We didn't even talk about the fact that they kill and eat a puppy. Oh, I forgot that they kill that dog. Sad. It's pretty horrifying. Again, it, it, it speaks is, but again, it, yeah, speaks to exactly what we're talking about of do what you need to do in war. And just like, well, I think the tension between them saying, well, you do what you need to do in war. And then us as a viewer being like, you absolutely don't need to do this. This is like grotesque and horrifying. Right. Right. And they're, they've, they've justified it to themselves, but yeah. to us, it's supposed to be as shocking as it is. Right. The only other uh, trivia I have that I really thought was fun, just cause I like envisioning this is that they filmed a lot of those night scenes in the hut during the day. So they had these big screens they would use to block out the sun, but they didn't just block out the whole thing. So whenever they needed like a reverse shot, they had to move the screens. So I'm just picturing the director like, all right, we're good. And then everyone just kind of shuffling around the screens. So they that's get great. The reverse shot. Um, I just like, I, that's, that's a fun fact for me. We already discussed that um, Shindo very deliberately um, disfigured the curse victims as a reference to the atomic bombings. So that's very, very interesting, very sad, as we discussed a lot of uh, art made around that time. Um, and then just, you know, always fun to think about that they did actually have to dig a big, a big hole in the ground. <laughs> they actually did have to, um, you know, dig that big, deep, dark, scary pit in order to film the scenes they wanted to film. So that's always fun art imitating life situation. Yeah. <laughs> art imitating life imitating art. Anything else? Nope, that's it. That's Honey Baba. There it is. A really smart and complicated little movie. Yeah, I'm actually glad we talked about it, I think, even more than I thought we were going to. Just kind of finding finding new things along the way about it. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's such a rich text that I think it's really... It lends itself really well to analysis that isn't quite what we do on this podcast, right? Like, specifically, I think that this requires a deep dive of into its themes and into the minutia. And I'm sure someone with more knowledge than us could, like, really give us a really good sense of... <laughs> Yeah, all of the things we've missed. So if you're out there and you, you know, have studied Japanese theater and film, we'd love to hear your thoughts. To those of you expecting a really uh, comprehensive analysis, I'm sorry, but this is just a fun little podcast where we talk about movies. But and we not... like. <laughs> My <laughs> eyes liked that thing. Therefore, it is good. <laughs> yeah. I'm not equipped to talk about Hiroshima and uh, no. all that. Yeah. Are you ready to spin a roulette and select another movie? You don't want to throw this into a deep, dark pit? <laughs> you're right. How could I forget? <laughs> I was expecting what you were going to say, and it uh, didn't come. Yes, absolutely. Our next movie will be... The Thing, but the remake of The Thing from 2011. Where is this currently streaming? It is currently streaming on HBO Max, which is fun. 
We don't do a lot of those. Yeah. So this is a prequel remake. It serves both purposes. You've seen it. Yeah. I have not. We just watched The Thing. For our John Carpenter marathon. Which was at the very tail end of October. So exciting. You just watched The Thing. That's so crazy. November just flew by. I'm really... that. Actually, I hate that that just happened. Yeah, November's in the past now. Oh my god, that's scary. Okay, sorry. Just had a moment of time moving very quickly. I feel like we just watched The Thing. Okay, I'm back. Sorry. So the 2011 The Thing will be our next film. I'm excited about this. A good December pick, too. Snowy. Very snowy. Chilly. We're all locked inside. Yeah, oh my god. The Thing. How perfect. It's very exciting. All right, our next movie will be The Thing 2011. And until then, you can check us out on our website at nowscreaming.com. And on Twitter and Facebook at nowscreaming. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. And yeah, come talk to us on Twitter. Come about talk to us on Twitter. Japanese film. Tell us what Anything. You know. Anything, but you know, I'm always interested in the knowledge of others and your viewers. Thanks, as always, to Wes Craven and to Kaneto Shindo and Yoshio Ueno, who are the credited production designer and costume supervisor for this movie for creating the this, mask. this mask. I don't know who to credit, so... Probably them, at least for finding it. If not if not building it themselves, at least sourcing it, right? Definitely. Interesting that uh, Kaneda Shido was also the production designer on this movie that he wrote and directed. This is like his movie. That's a lot of work. <laughs> it is. Like, the, the reason that that's a separate job, even though they're working so closely with the director, is that it takes a lot of work to do that. Yeah, well, they're just all out in a field all day, water sliding, and he's just, like, doing it all by himself. he's still designing that hut. Like, <laughs> incredible. They, go plan the water slide while I figure well, out... I do everything else about this movie. <laughs> all right. Until next time, everybody. Stay spooky. Stay spooky. Stay spooky.